So yes, so I'm going to read for us um, John 1 verses 29 to 42. So John 1 verses 29 to 42. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man will, who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not, did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which, when translated, is Peter. Girls, the, the, they're away up the stairs. <laughs> so, when Facebook and Twitter first appeared, do you remember being a bit bemused by it all? You know, for example, a cake shop having followers. You know, how can you follow a shop? <laughs> uh, doesn't something have to be moving, you know, to actually follow it? Now, phrases such as follow us on Twitter are commonplace and unquestioned. But where does this following lead? You know, if you follow someone, you know, someone famous perhaps, does it give you a true picture of who they are, you know, is it a picture you want to have, you know, and we know as well so many of these celebrities, you know, especially are curating, you know, what they're putting up on their social media um, and sometimes as well things that they post can come back to haunt them, 
Um, uh, which, uh, yes, they do. it's not so good. Now, during the lockdown, I started following the comedian Janie Godley, which many, maybe a few of you did, you know, on Facebook. Um, after, after discovering um, her many funny versions, uh, her funny voiceovers of uh, Nicola Sturgeon and other politicians, um, so I was always, I saw her, I'd started following, following her then, and they really were a source of amusement. Uh, and I think we, we needed that light-heartedness at that time, didn't we? You know, because it was a dark time. Um, and so since then, I've continued to follow um, her page, even though I will say I don't always agree with, you know, her politics or her opinions. You know, I'm like, you know, just let people, you know, get on with things. But I do find her eh, funny. Now, this week, I'm going to get on my high horse here. <laughs> now, this week, I was actually a bit disturbed by, uh, but it was one of her posts. Um, and, uh, and if anybody's watching or listening online later on, please know that there's no hate here, right? So don't come after me. This is just some thoughts I have. Um, now, but because of um, our politics and some of the causes that she supports, she actually was getting um, some really horrible messages from, we'll call them, we'll call them right-wing conservative Christians, okay? And, um, and it pains me, actually, that people who say they're Christians are sending hateful messages to anybody. Um, but, you know, as Janie Godley's going through a bad time as well, she's, she's living with cancer and she's got enough to deal with. But I do think it's terrible that actually anybody makes horrible comments online. But it's even worse when it's people that say that they're Christians. But what actually pained me even more was the amount of comments that were coming from people against Christians and the church. You know, talking about how, or, you know, the, the church had maybe let them down, how Christians were not what they painted themselves to be. Um, and it was, you know, that really disturbed me. You know, and there was Christians then commented, you know, saying, oh, not all Christians are like that, you know, there's good ones here, you know, there's good ones. Um, but this, you know, it was, um, they, they didn't, these people, and I know I didn't appreciate, you know, all Christians being lumped together. Uh, I didn't like it, but I felt I couldn't comment because I thought, well, I'm a minister in the church, I better not. <laughs> uh, and so I, I actually was good to see that, that people were, they didn't want to see all Christians lumped together negatively. And then when I looked back at the post, I realized I had seen that it was edited. And Janie said, well, it said, if you're not an angry Christian who's been sending me hate, then I, and I've had to block, then I'm not speaking about you. So that was good that that was clarified. But what else I noticed was that Facebook then only showed me they had realized, the algorithms had realized that I was a Christian, probably from the posts that I'd seen. And then they only showed me the, the posts that were favorable um, to Christians. Um, 
And I thought, oh, that's interesting. But my thoughts on that are for another sermon entirely. That's for another time. But what disturbed me the most since I've seen that, that post is the amount of people, you know, thinking about the amount of people in our communities who have either had a bad experience of the church or a bad experience of Christians. And then, and this made me think of an experience I had in my place, one of my placement churches. Now, I may have told you this before, and if I have, forgive me, but I do think it's an important point worth reiterating. You know, so back then, it was a good few years ago, I was in a Bible study in the home of an elder. And one of the people there, um, who was an elder as well, said that they didn't tell people that they were a Christian because they didn't want to be judged negatively. Instead, they told people that they went to church. And others within this group, others within this group agreed and they said they did the same. Some said that their faith was private, so nobody needed to know about it. But again, they did this and they thought this because they didn't want to be viewed negatively. So, me being, you know me, I challenged this and I challenged this big style. So I did. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, and I know it made an impact on the person who originally voiced their thoughts about being judged negatively um, because eventually they went and volunteered to be a street pastor. Then, you know, going out very visibly as a Christian, sharing their faith with others. Now, in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, Jesus gave the disciples what's called the Great Commission. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we too have that commission, just like the disciples, to go out and make disciples. So for people to be interested in doing something, they first have to be introduced to it and to be involved, you know, for them then to be involved. And secondly, for them to want to actually continue to be involved, it has to be attractive. It has to be something that they want for themselves. Now, I think for people to be interested in getting to know Jesus, they have to first be invited. And be invited by people who have experienced that life-changing love of Christ for themselves. And so we, Christians, you know, are we, are we actively inviting others to know Jesus for themselves? And are we, by our words 
and our actions an attractive, true reflection of Christ. And it isn't just today on social media that there are followers. In New Testament times, rabbis had followers, disciples whom they were training. John the Baptist had some, and we hear of them in this week's gospel reading that I read for us. But John had made a discovery. He had something, he had seen something in his cousin Jesus that perhaps he wasn't expecting. And he didn't want to keep it to himself, quite the opposite. He went out of his way to tell Andrew and his friends what he thought, even though that meant that he would lose these disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist is a witness to Christ, and he sets us an example of how we can share Christ with others. He first says to his disciples who Christ is. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, throughout the Bible, lambs are innocent, vulnerable creatures. The purest lamb can be offered as a sacrifice. God's people are described as lambs in need of a shepherd. There are pictures of the lion lying down with the lamb. The redemption of the natural world at the end of time. The lamb is a creature that is pure in obedience, but powerless in independent action. And it's worth reflecting on this title as an image of the meekness of Jesus, who even in the fiery apocalyptic book of Revelation, still appears as a lamb standing as if it's been slaughtered. You'll find that in Revelation 5, 6. John the Baptist gives Jesus this startling and unique title. As God had provided a lamb for sacrifice in the place of Isaac in Genesis, so Jesus is the lamb provided by God to be sacrificed in the place of others. He also fulfills the ritual of the Passover in which the lamb was the effective symbol of salvation from the destruction. And you'll find that in Exodus 7, eh, 3 to 17. And as a lamb led to the slaughter and bearing the sins of many, he disregards the role of this, eh, he discharges, sorry, the role of the suffering servant highlighted in Isaiah. Tasker says, but John penetrates still deeper into the mystery of atonement when he states that in taking upon himself the sins of the world, Jesus takes it away, removing both its guilt and its power. And by placing this title on Jesus at the very start of his ministry, John is highlighting that all of Jesus' life, his words and his works, undertake this task of liberating people from sin. How amazing is that? You know, what a gift the Lord has given us. 
you know, that gift of freedom. And if you knew that there was someone who could be free from their sin, free from guilt and power and the power of that sin, wouldn't you want to tell them? If you were that person who was struggling, who was struggling with the guilt, with the shame of how they were feeling, wouldn't you want to know how you could be free? Our world is full of people who need to know this life-transforming love of Jesus. John the Baptist knew that this was something never before seen. He knew that this was life-changing. And so he doesn't keep this knowledge to himself. He shares it out loud to his disciples. And then... After saying who Jesus is, he gives his testimony. So he's not just saying who Jesus is. He is telling people why he knows this. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. John points beyond himself. And he must have known very well that to speak to his disciples like this about Jesus was an invitation for them to leave him and to follow Jesus, their, their new and greater teacher. But there's no jealousy in John. And he would have probably been thinking in this time, coming to an understanding what his ministry was all about, that everything before, that come before in his life was leading to this point, pointing to Jesus. He had come to attach people, not to himself, but to Christ. But what John said was effective. Andrew was intrigued by this man, Jesus, and he went to see him for himself. He wants to know. Andrew and his friend went and they followed Jesus. But initially, you know, they're hanging back a wee bit, you know, they didn't say anything. Perhaps, perhaps they're a bit shy. You know, perhaps though they didn't know how to articulate maybe the longing that they had within them to know more. But Jesus makes it easy for them. He turns round and he speaks to them. And here, William Barclay says, we have the symbol of, of divine initiative. Because it's always God who takes the first step. When the human mind begins to seek and the human heart begins to long, God comes to meet us. God doesn't just leave a person to search and search. God goes out to meet the person. And actually, God might do that through, through me. He might do that through you. 
And that's something that we've always got to be open to. Jesus asks Andrew and his friends, what do you want? And Andrew and his friends simply reply, Rabbi, where are you staying? They don't know yet what it is that they really want. But for now, they just want to know Jesus. They just want to get to know him. And Jesus replies, come and you will see. Come and you will see. What an invitation. Come and you will see. Suddenly, suddenly the world is opened to new opportunities and new possibilities. Jesus wasn't just inviting them to come and talk, you know, and have a wee bit of dinner, you know. Jesus was inviting them to come and see what only he could give them, what only he can give us. And they accept the invitation to find out more. And then, like John, Andrew, he couldn't keep this to himself, you know. He couldn't keep this to himself either. After spending the day with Jesus, he went and searched out his brother Simon. You know, and I don't think this was some sudden inspired grand plan, you know, to evangelize the world. It was just someone who thought his brother needed to know Jesus. So he told him, we have found the Messiah. And in John the Baptist's words, we have found the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now Peter, he didn't, t- you know, he didn't quite trust this either. So he went to see for himself too. And then he went and he told others, perhaps his friends, James and John, we don't know exactly. But we do know that he went on to tell many other people. He came, he saw, he told, and again, and again, and again. We found the Messiah. Come and see. And the story continues, friends. But now it is our story to tell. We are the ones who have come to see. We are the ones who now have to repeat it to others. Our words, and especially our lives, need to be like signposts to Jesus or like John's pointing finger. Behold, see. And it doesn't have to be a big mission strategy. Just a genuine sharing of what we know. What we know in our hearts. Who Jesus is and why we know that. And to share what Jesus has done for us. And when we reflect on that, when we give thanks for that, for all that he's done in our lives, that love of Jesus is then reflected in our lives, visible to offer all to see. So, I'm inviting you, friends, to consider who are you going to tell this week? 
What do you see in Jesus that you would like to tell other people about? Can you find an opportunity this week to share your faith with someone else? How can your words and your actions perhaps change someone's negative thinking about the church and of Christians? Let us pray.